Hello, everyone, and good evening. Welcome to the Cope Life Nation podcast, where we focus on kindness, optimism, positivity, and empathy. And what I really like to do is bring you new guests who can really educate us, either inspire us with their story or educate us on something important. Or like my guest tonight, Daniela Young, really give us both educate me and tell me some things I need to know. And so I'm excited. I hope you are too. We're going to jump right in. Welcome, Daniela. Thank you for being here. I appreciate you. Thank you so much for having me. So I noticed that really just through social media, I noticed the things that you post about. And one of the things that you've been focusing on a lot, in fact, you have a book about it that we're going to talk about a little bit later. You've been talking about cults. And I, I believe that for most people, when we think about cults, we think about a cult as something either you're in or you're out, like some kind of a membership. And then that's kind of all it is. And we have this kind of idea that, like, I want to say, like, um, ignorance, vulnerable people end up in cults and everyone else is, like, immune. And so... Right off the bat, if you can just start with the basics and then let's get it going. What what do you have to teach me? I'm excited. I really am. <laughs> yeah, you know, I think with what you've said, so so my life experience coming out of a cult, you know, I, I grew up, was born and raised in the children of God. I kind of, my life starts really when I'm 15 and then get excommunicated from this cult and then come to America where everyone thinks they know what a cult is and it's not them right it's it's the <laughs> other and we talk a lot about us versus them language in cult scholarship but this is what i've found through you know telling my story is that everyone thinks of a cult as like those guys over there those groups over there i would never do that meanwhile my experience has been being in all of these different groups, you know, so I was in a born and raised in a cult. And then I come out and I go to like American high school, American college. Then I go into the military where I'm studying terrorist groups. Then I go into corporate America. Then I go to study organizational psychology and like all these different business groups. And every group that I'm looking at, I can, I can tell you like, oh, this is how this compares to the cult, right? And so for me, it really became this thing of, well, it's not a binary question. And so the book that I wrote, uh, what I did, I think to some scandal is, um, well, I told this, it's a story of my life. So it's a story of my life being born and raised generations into the children of God, one of the world's most notorious sex cults, coming out that whole process I described, but then being in the military and going, oh, I'm seeing some parallels here. You know, so it it is kind of this transformational story, but it's also getting you to look at these parallels of these two groups and the way this, that group behavior works. Um, and then where I think the teaching really starts, like now I'm, I'm working on a second book called The Culting of America. And these are a lot of my, my videos that you'll see on TikTok or Instagram. Okay. It's like, well, once we define a cult and I have this 10 part definition of cult, like you need these 10 different parts of group behavior if you're gonna be considered like a legit cult. However, if we break those out, we can find that group behavior in practically every group that we're in, which that's for me, that's that feeling of like the echoing, you know? So uh, I'm sorry. When when you say that, I I love how you're breaking it down and how you broke it down into really any organization, right? And so one thing you mentioned was the military. I spent 20 years in the Air Force, and you remind me of when I was stationed overseas, and we were involved in certain things. We being the I was in the Air Force, so we being the Air Force, and there were other people being involved in other things, and they were very similar. And so I asked this one individual, I said, well, if we're all doing the same thing, what's the difference? And his response is, the difference is we're the good guys. <laughs> so when you talk yes. about 
when you talk about um, 10 different steps or phases, so can you kind of break that down to us? And what I, what I really want to do is, is kind of understand each phase separately. And I say that because it's, it's almost like an opportunity for me to look at each phase separately and think, hmm, was I doing that? Does that sound like something I've been involved in? Because I think it's it's easy for us to not know. And so, yeah, if you could yes, just jump right in. I'm, I'm absolutely. And, and I think this is what makes it helpful, right? Because we do like we do like to talk about cults. We are intrigued by kind of like the most extreme depths that human beings will go to. But we are so much more unwilling to like walk it back, right? Or consider that our our side, like you said, like, oh, well, we're the good guys. Um, and so, yes, I let me give you, so this definition of cult. I put this together in part because I was like, every definition I've seen kind of feels like you're listing these qualities, but it's more than just a list of qualities. There's also this journey component to it that the leader and the group goes on. And this is why you can also have like different experiences at different points of time in the same group, right? Because at some point it was a group and at some point it becomes a cult. So we start off step number one, the, the what's considered one of the most important things is a charismatic leader. Um, this one is interesting because of technology, because of QAnon specifically, there's starting to be questions among scholars. Do you have to have a specific leader anymore. But for now, you know, most cults, most groups of coercive control, you have a leader that can be identified at the top. And the charisma part is specifically important. They are the leader because of certain qualities about them that make them qualified to be the leader. So, and then step number two, you have this sacred assumption. And all group members must kind of transform their worldview to operate under this sacred assumption. So in Children of God, the sacred assumption was that this random white dude was the prophet of God. And in Nexium, you know, the more recent sex cults, again, another random white dude. But this time, everyone is convinced that he is the smartest man on earth. Who's wow. developed this secret program? You know, I say with even the US military, right? Sacred assumption can be that the flag is worth protecting. Um, and so you have this belief, and it's so big and so unquestionable that you will justify anything. And we can see this specifically with like Children of God or Nexium where children of God, you know, specifically, he justifies pedophilia. And 10,000 people stay. You know, so really not questioning this sacred assumption. He's the prophet of God, therefore he must be correct. See, I, I've seen some, I've seen some other videos, short form videos and, and even longer debates speaking specifically about things in the Bible and and just kind of goes along with what you're saying, but these are specific events in the Bible where someone will say, well, that's okay because God did it and God is just. And therefore we are unable to use any of our morals or standards or judgments, conclusions to even take a second look at that. This is mm -hmm. this person did it, therefore it is just. And right there, the sacred assumption, right? Yes. Is God just? And you know, like that's the whole discussion. But if that's the thing you're not willing to consider, then you can absolutely end up using that to justify. So, so how does someone, and I'm gonna ask you this question, but I do wanna get through all 10 steps. <laughs> but I wanna ask you this question. How does someone, and it's it's one thing for children, but it's another thing for an adult. How does an adult go from, I don't know, free thinker, independent person to, to following these steps and joining a cult? How does that mindset change, even though I know we see it 
it seems regularly in the U.S. nowadays. Yes. Um, well, you know, I love this question because so often when we talk about cults, as you mentioned, we talk about the joiner. Oh, what was wrong with them? Oh, what was going on? And we don't look as much as the process, like how much is put into recruiting, how much is put into uh, keeping the wool over your eyes until you are at the point in the journey where you are ready. Right. And so I, you'll understand this as a service person, you know, I, I describe this to like every cult has a cult inside the cult. Yes. So in Children of God, it's the leadership homes where I grow up. In Scientology, it's the Sea Org. And in the US Army, it's the special forces, right? But like, imagine we just go and grab Kevin off the street and just throw him in a room with a bunch of special forces operators, right? Like that dude is gonna run out screaming. Um, <laughs> he's not gonna be ready. You have to slowly, you know, I always right. say it takes, it takes someone six months to fully onboard into the children of God and into the US Army. You know, like there is this process yeah. of, you know, you're finding usually very young people. And the one quality that has been identified in cult joiners is they're seeking. And then, and this is true for both cults and charismatic leaders, they pop up in times of social turmoil. So the real reason that people go from free thinking to cults is they're confused. They're confused and they're scared. And the systems that they are a part of are not working for them anymore. So they're looking for a new system, a new clarity. And like, even on a, like a minuscule level, you know, when I go from the cult where I know everything to the big wide open world where I know nothing and I struggle for six years, I looked forward to basic training. I remember going, I cannot wait to just not have to think for three months and just be told where to be and what to do and like have this group and know that you are a part of the greater mission. And this, you know, I'll bring you back to the, our list here because this sacred assumption and then this transcendent mission are the parts that get you to start forgetting everything, right? Like that you had before. So it's not just, oh, come on in here and join my cult, right? Or like, this is the leader, this is the Messiah, he's gonna take you to the apocalypse. There's, there's these steps of finding, you know, isolated people, bringing them in with love bombing, overwhelming them. But also there's a lot of effort put into camouflaging the group's coercive tendencies and beliefs until these new members are, you know, effectively brought in and are considered to be true believers, at which point, you know, you slowly start getting deeper and deeper into it. Okay. So, so then, so let's get back on it then. So what is step three? Yeah. So this is the transcendent mission and this is, you know, why people think they are joining the cult, right? So it's the cult is always the creation of the people that want to be in coercive control. And this is when we when we tell the mythology of cults, a lot of times we talk about like, oh, it was this great group and then it turned into something. But like almost never is that true. Usually it was a con the whole way along. And the transcendent mission is the thing that keeps people distracted and keeps them there. So you have this huge giant mission, the children of God, it's win the world for Jesus before the end of days, right? Like, how do you define success on that? <laughs> uh, right, you know, in, uh, in WeWork, the uh, office space that turned into a giant cult, their mission was to elevate the consciousness of humanity. Um, you know, I even say with like with the U.S. Army, it's what protect the American way of life, um, you know, or even getting a little more specific, protect American interests overseas and at home. That's still pretty broad. It's still pretty impossible to define success. So I almost describe the transcendent mission as like the opposite of your smart mission, your smart goals that are supposed to be like reasonable and measurable and timely. 
right? There's these big things, all the promises, you know, are, are in the future, um, but they are obviously good things, right? And so this is a reason that we see religions and nonprofits specifically become very, very culty. Um, but I've had in today's America, I've had a lot of teachers reach out to me and say, you know, they keep saying, do it for the children, do it for the children, sacrifice, like all of these things, right? And everything can, should be done in service of the children. So, so that is how the transcendent mission, I feel like, kind of sets like this cloud over everything. And then in pursuit of the transcendent mission, all of the members have to constantly self-sacrifice. Yes. And... Yes. Definitely, that's something we can see, I think, in, in a lot okay, of so, groups. So I'm, I'm just following. So we have a charismatic leader, and we have this, this sacred mission. And we're just, we're, I just, I just want to get into step four, because I'm just following along. And really, the different examples you give, like, for example, with the teachers, it makes perfect sense, because with with teachers, it's almost like, you're a bad person if you don't want to spend all night chaperoning the sixth grade dance and spending your That's money exactly. on the decorations yes. and those kinds of things. And, and it yes. sounds kind of small, really, but over time, if you think you're immoral, you judge yourself for not sacrificing for the children. And so to me, even now, we're only on step three, but I can like... It's, it's easy to see where this is going. And so, so what yeah. is step four? I'm, yeah, I'm, and so, so step three was actually the transcendent mission and step four was self-sacrifice. Okay. Um, yeah. But so, and with what you were saying too, it's also really easy for coercive leaders to weaponize that, right? Like what, so you don't care about the children, you know? Um, in, we see this a lot in veterans organizations. The like, yeah. oh, you're not willing to give up everything for to help these veterans? What is wrong with you? And so that is, and, and the self-sacrifice part becomes important. So, right. okay, so then step five is isolation. And here's where, when I said it was a journey, like you have a before and you have an after, like you have a before you were isolated and an after. Um, this is also where I think, you know, military units, not always cults, but as soon as you deploy or like as soon as you get in a situation where the military is billeting you or telling you where to sleep, you now also have this isolation or this like function of being held separate from the outside world. And isolation is so important. I mean, there's a whole concept called total institutions, which is where you live and work with like situated people separate from the outside world, but with a formal overlay. And this is, this is prisons, this is mental institutions, this is cults, military units, but putting a group of like similar people together, where th whether that's ideologically similar or any kind of other similarity, wearing a uniform on the same team, et cetera, and then isolating them away, this like isolation together, it makes group norms just turn into this whole different animal um, where something that might be considered optional when you're in the regular world in your group, as soon as you get isolated, like you're doing that thing or you're standing out. Um, and of course, we know from looking at domestic violence relationships that isolation can be very, very key to coercion. Um, and this, it's also one of those things that I think has in some ways gotten worse because of technology. Yeah, that, um, that makes, see, that makes perfect sense to me because we know how much we want to be seen and heard and how much we desire to belong. And so you've got this group of people that are all following this behavior. And it's really easy to belong. Just do what you're told. Just do what everyone else is doing. And then 
although it may be unintentional, but the people you've known before, like your own family members, they they're isolating you, but it's unintentional. They're just saying to you flat out, I don't understand why you're doing this. I don't understand how you can think like this. And so there's this draw to the cult. And, and one thing mm -hmm. I think about, you know, and, and you mentioned sex cults. One thing I think about is um, Jehovah's Witnesses. Um, and I say that because I saw recently where there's a, a pedophilia scandal among the Jehovah's Witnesses. But even the way that they operate, it's, and, and they're not the only ones, obviously. I think that to some degree, this is in all religions, but it's, if you're going to go hang out with someone, it has to be one of us. If you're looking to fall in love, it has to be one of us. And another thing that they do is, and I've seen this in different groups, is a man is powerful. A man can go find a woman outside of the group because he can convert her. But a woman's only options for a mate are the men who are already in the church. <laughs> it's, mm. it's absolutely wild, yes. but that's, that's the isolation. And, yes. and you judge yourself, like you blame yourself for being isolated. Yes. Um, and, a, and a big thing about cults is they get you to criticize yourself and judge yourself. And, and part of the journey is you learning to lay yourself completely open to the group for criticism. Um, and so that you're constantly bettering yourself. And if you think about your Air Force career, um, you know, we do that quite a bit in those groups, too. And, you know, these next two steps will really tie into what you were just saying, because next you have after isolation or usually tantamount with isolation, you have the group specific language, right? This distinguishable vernacular that only has meaning to the group. And a really important part of that language is the terminology for us versus them, which is step seven, right? But it's like ins insider versus outsider language. And as soon as you, you know, sometimes unintentionally, right? But think about like so in the military, so we have service members, so then we have civilians. But then we know that the way we talk about civilians can be rather negative within right. the context of our group, you know? And so you're like constantly, re or just, air, right? Like as soon as you said Air Force, like I wanted to make a Chair Force joke, you know? <laughs> like we, we, we do us versus them really well in, uh, in the military. Although I no longer make Chair Force jokes after the, the amazing thing that the Air Force did getting everyone out of Afghanistan. The Air Force is cool now. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Man, it, it's, it's funny because when you say that, yeah, we're, we're trained that way, it becomes a habit. It's, it's a cultural norm where it's not just us versus them, but it's we're so much better than them. And if they would just admit their fault and bow down, we would welcome them mm -hmm. because and this goes back to the sacred mission, because we are so much closer to God, to righteousness or the way that we can kind of equate the U.S. military to Christianity, almost like we're we're doing this because democracy is godlike. There's definitely a deification element there. And in fact, yeah. when I was on active duty, I used to rant about this so often. I was like, the only profession that we capitalize in English is savior or messiah. So when we capitalize soldier, which they make you do in the US Army, right? Like this is a direct allusion to soldiers as Jesus. And I like, before I knew all of how to explain this, I was just like, there's something here like in this deification element. But what you said, like this is very insightful and this is I think a really hard one for us is that cults and high control groups, no matter how we got into them, right? I was born in mine, not my fault but they indoctrinate us to feel like we are better than everyone else. And that is why so many people go cult hopping after they leave one group. And I think this is the hardest hole to fill is you, you don't get to feel superior, right? You don't get to feel 100% right. 
you, you know, I noticed this for myself going from, you know, first I was grew up thinking I was a missionary and then I was a super student and then I was a soldier. And then what I was just supposed to go work at Microsoft. Like that was very underwhelming and hard for me. And part of what I have had to deal with is that need that I was raised with to be part of the 1%, to be in, in the cutting edge, you know? And so I think there's this need for superiority that cults meet that it's really hard for us to talk about. Um, but that's really just at the heart of it, right? That confidence that you are right and you have the secret. Um, which of course, when we flip that around, that's exactly how cults recruit is telling people, you know, 90% of people aren't going to get this, but you're the special ones. Right, right. Yeah. And, and, and so what happens is because we are superior beings, even if my data is incorrect, well, it's okay because overall we are just better. We're just more righteous. We're just more morally sound. We're just more intelligent. We know, we know the truth and all of these different layers of superiority that I can be wrong about something, but it's okay because I'm still a better, like a better being, right? And I don't want to say human being yes. because in a lot of these cults, it's like, we're not even the same. We're not, we're not all the same level of human. There's the yeah. dehumanization. Or, or we've dehuman. Yeah, exactly. We've dehumanized the outsiders so much that we don't think of ourselves in the same way. That's, you know, and this, um, actually the term cognitive dissonance comes out of cult research. And it was this researcher in the fifties who theorized that this, uh, this doomsday cult, obviously the world was not going to end, but that all of the people were not going to go home and they would rather justify. And, and this has been proven now over and over again, that members that are truly committed will accept any justification for why, you know, their deity delayed the promised apocalypse or promised whatever, rather than accept that they could have been wrong or their leader could have been wrong. Um, and that's like literally what cognitive dissonance is, is when just like accepting the fact that you would be wrong is just too painful. So your brain just like opens a space for you to believe two conflicting things at once. Right. Um, and, and when you say that it's, it's too painful, I want people to understand that 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 those words are meant literally. It, it literally like causes your brain to malfunction. It's you can't reconcile it. It doesn't make sense. Yeah. And so the way that, I mean, when you're experiencing trauma, there's certain things that your brain does to protect you. And this cognitive dissonance is kind of acts in the same way. Let me protect this belief. Let me protect this part of my thought process. How do I do that? I can just call all these other people stupid. I can say that they're all wrong and they don't understand. And then that's it. And now I've essentially protected my own worldview from harm. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we see this a lot still tearing up families and relationships, even after the cults. For example, we will see a lot of like our parents who like were the ones who joined the cult and they're out now and they've realized that it was something but they can't let themselves really under even listen to their children to understand what the effects have been because for them to admit what they were part of is just too painful. So I think this is one of those really sad parts is like even afterwards, sometimes you still have so much cognitive dissonance among survivors that people have a hard time discussing what happened and healing. Um, and step number eight is exploitation of labor. <laughs> mm -hmm. Um, and you know, this one absolute epiphany for me, there's this amazing cult scholar named Dr. Yanya Lalit, who was in like a left leaning political cult in the seventies and has been studying this stuff ever since. And she says, cults are always about labor. 
And yeah. until like, until I heard that line, you know, and it's so interesting because everyone refers to the children of God as a sex cult, because that is the most scandalous thing. And because I think it's valid because the beliefs really did hinge on sex. However, what the children of God really was, was a giant child trafficking labor organization that created childhood entertainment videos and sold them all around the world and had all of these kids working to keep these communes going all the time. And, you know, cults, of course, are about coercive control. And for these leaders, right, labor is the thing they can keep taking from you, right? It's the endless thing. Once they've taken all of your money, all of your time, your spouse, your children, made you forsake your family, literally everything else, your, your body, sex, they can still take labor. And so, you know, understanding that cults want your labor is really important. I think it's also a way for us to reverse out and say, you know, that is starting to maybe seem coercive. Like how much of my labor am I giving them? And then what am I getting in return? Um, and, you know, we think about cults exploiting labor. That one is easy to accept. But, you know, if the Department of Defense had to pay overtime, they would shut down in an hour, yes. as, as would most companies in America. You know, right. like we all know that when you get put on a salary, your 40 hour work week goes out the window. Um, exploitation of labor. I mean, in the teaching field, nursing, you know, lots, lots of nonprofits, right? And companies, like for-profit companies are not allowed to accept volunteer labor. And in my opinion, it's just because, right? Like it's so easy to coercively control people when you are, you know, when it's an organization, it's a group that has far more resources than an individual and you're adding now free labor and controlling labor into that. See, uh, you say that and I think about, I think about just those fundamental tenets of, of self-judgment, the sacred mission and the wanting to belong, right? So if there's five or six of us doing this labor, who is going to be the weak, immoral one who caves first? Not me, because I'm devoted. I'm committed. I understand. And so it's that it's that peer pressure, not just that you're being exploited for your labor, but due to these other factors, you're proud of it and you want to do more. And the, the, you know, with America specifically, this culture of the goodness of suffering, right? This yes. puritanical idea that my suffering makes me more pure. Um, and I think, you know, like I, even outside the context of religion, like I ran myself into the ground in the army just because psychologically, I think I felt that like, well, doing hard things proves that I am a valuable human. Um, and I think that what you said, like that's very tied into how we are. And then also, and this is what I was saying where uh, number four, self-sacrifice ties into exploitation of labor, because yes. if you're ex already expected to self-sacrifice, it's very, very easy for them to take your labor. Yeah, it, you know, it, it really is. And when I think about it, too, it's it's a matter of wanting wanting people above you, right, in the in the cult hierarchy or the military rank structure or whatever organization you're in, where it's so-and-so said, I did a good job. I won this quarterly award. I'm up for promotion. And then what happens is maybe they submit these awards packages, right? This in the air force and you didn't win. This other person won. And so what do you think? If only I had done more. Mm-hmm. The problem is me, <laughs> you know, like I built two houses. I could have built five. Yes. And, you know, when we study, I'm just going to go ahead and say toxic groups across the board. 
blaming individuals for systemic issues is always something that we find. Yes. Yes, um, definitely. Yeah. So that like fits right in there. Um, and then, you know, so now we're getting to number nine. Number yeah. nine is high exit costs. Okay. And this absolutely, if you ever accuse any group of being a cult, they will say one thing first. And it is always, we're not a cult. You're free to leave anytime. So I love this phrase because I always say it's, it's absolutely not true. The only reason somebody says that is to remind you of a dichotomy, right? You don't like America, fine, leave, right? They're saying, stop critically complaining, accept all of it, which is my way, or, or leave, right? But then also you're free connotates this, you know, like there's a price to leaving. Right. And a lot of people get confused because they're thinking of price as money. And I would say like the actual exit costs can be money, but that's almost never the most serious exit costs. Um, and usually it is losing loss of community, loss of sense of purpose, loss of time. Imagine how many years you might've spent in this. You know, I say for my grandfather, who still runs the money for children of God, right? Like, can he really wake up? Because he spent 50 years in this. Wow. So he would be admitting that he wasted his entire life. And you know, we talked a little bit earlier about the pain of cognitive dissonance. But like, uh, psychologists estimate that leaving high control groups is the closest thing we have to experiencing death um that we can still like talk about afterwards and so you know it it almost never is the cost although a lot of times you will see cults take people far far away like for example to jonestown um in which case geographic isolation does make cost become an actual factor a lot of times the isolation is to make leaving costs higher, right? Because if you have yeah. tons of friends and family, you're not scared to just pack up your stuff in the middle of the night and go to them. But right. if you've isolated everyone you know, where are you going to go? Um, right, and if you're younger, you're younger and your parents are in the cults, you, you don't have that career. You're, you were the exploited labor. Your career path was being the labor for the cult until you got promoted within that organization. And exactly. so then the cost of leaving would be immeasurable almost. Yeah. I was 15 years old, zero dollars. You know, I spent, I spent three weeks in Houston, Texas, with zero dollars. Um, yeah. Fun times. Um, but you know, so I, I always just, I want people to look at it like in your good organizations, Right? What is the cost to people when they leave? What, you know, what happens to people when they leave? Do they get shunned? What are your processes when people tell you they want to leave? You know, I mean, I wrote a whole book about the parallels between the military and the cult, and I didn't even get to all the parallels of when you say you're leaving the military right. and how they start to treat you. Immediately, like you are someone who's quitting the team. And, you know, I experienced this when I was getting out after six and a half years. So I was like, okay, fine. I am quitting the team. And then I saw my husband retire after 20 years, 19 of them actively at war from special operations, still being treated like he was quitting the team. Um, and this is, you know, in Uncultured, I say the first rule of cults is you're never in a cult. And then I say that watching the Harry Meghan saga helped me verbalize the second rule of cults, which is the cult will forgive any sin, <clears throat> Prince Andrew, any sin except leaving. Right. So and I like I even think it's to the point where like when you have to talk about leaving a group instead of exiting a group, 
Like there's some sorts of, of different levels of control right. there, you know, right. like leaving the church um, versus, you know, I just say I quit my job at Microsoft. I'm not like, oh, and I was leaving Microsoft. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, you know, I think that's one of the things that people that are trying to build, build good organizations can look at, you know, it's like, what is the, the leaving process? Like, what are these walls? What are the exit costs? You know, if people truly are here by choice, then, you know, how are we helping people come and go kind of in the same way? Um, mm. So that's exit costs. And then step number 10, at this point, I say, you know, if you've related to all 10 of these, congratulations, you're probably in a cult. And this wow. is ends, ends justifies the means mentality. Um, yeah. I say... I, what I think is the good news here is that usually when a cult is full on and justifies the means mentality, this also signifies that they are in their end game. Like they think their, you know, promised apocalypse is coming. Like they are about to get the things they've been fighting for. If we think about the military, right? When we are close to accomplishing the mission, that's when we can slip into anything goes, you know, and justifies the means um, mentality. And this is, you know, this is the one that I use very specifically. And I will say, you know, my rule number one for good groups is don't rape the children. And people say, well, yeah, that one's obvious. <laughs> I say, okay, well, how many groups, organizations, individuals, famous individuals do we have in our society that we have let get away with this? And, you know, where you think like, it's obvious, right? Obviously, we should know that when you are getting this bad in the power dynamic, when you are sexually abusing children, which always, always we find in some way in these coercive groups, in my opinion, because it's the ultimate power imbalance. Um, and even that gets justified to people, right? Gets justified to people as we can't, you know, so often, right? Someone is caught, the, the Duggar boy, for example, right? And the church is going to protect, the group is going to protect because the reputation of the group, the good of the mission, all of these other things, all of the ends that we are trying to get to makes us either justify or willing to cover up any sort of atrocity that happens. And, I, you know, I believe in an, I believe in I forget what state, but there was a state recently where they reinforced that by law because of freedom of religion that churches and church entities, including the Catholic Church, do not have to report pedophilia within their organization. It's I, I don't I don't understand that at all. I don't I mean. Yeah, that's that's about as as plain as it gets. I don't I don't understand any ability to justify sexually abusing a child, much less you know adults and and your own family members and and everything else yeah. that goes on. So how do they? But this is that's why I think like it's it's not justifiable until you are completely in this situation where like you are under such coercive control that you will justify anything. You know, if you are someone in the children of God that has given everything up because you believe the world is about to end and the prophet of God is showing you the way and then the prophet of God does something bad. You know, how, how many times have we seen in society the King David analogy? I don't know if you're familiar. But, oh, it was applied to Donald Trump, right? Like, oh, well, he might be sinful, but King David wasn't perfect. God uses sinful vessels, right? you know? Right. And it, 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 it's the, be the best way I can describe it is that people, like we believe that we are rational and we truly believe that when we see extremism, we'll recognize it and we'll walk away. 
And so we truly, truly believe that when the guru says incest is okay, it's okay to have sex with children, we will walk away. And I am literally from the 10,000 people that didn't. Wow. I just, and it, and it really, it comes back to what we started with, with that, but we're the good guys. Right. Right. And if we are holding in our minds, you know, my, my moment, and it's in the book of my crack in the brainwashing, you know, I'm growing up with all this abuse. I hate these people. I want to get out, but I still only know what they tell me. And my crack in the brainwashing was watching 9-11, the first time I seen live news on television. And I'm hearing my people praising God for the destruction on evil America, Babylon the horror. Meanwhile, um, I hear the words religious extremism on television for the first time talking about the terrorists. And that was my first moment of being like, Oh, are we the bad guys? You know, like, are wow. we religious extremists? Those and are it really comes back to that. As, as soon as, as long as I thought that the children of God was the family, was the army of God, was the the most right, no matter how much I hated it and wanted to be out of there, I still didn't necessarily have all the power to question it, to right. question the whole thing. But as soon as I was willing to question Oh, are we not right? Are we the religious extremism? Religious extremists? Everything else comes crumbling down, you know, and everything else no longer makes sense. So you, I mean, your story is, I don't even know the whole story, but it's amazing to me, you know, some things that I've read have talked about how what you experienced in the first two months of life can make or break you can make or break you across the lifespan. What happens in childhood? Yet you've been able to overcome that. And um, so what I want to do is, is put the link down, give people an opportunity. But I, I kind of want to know, you know, we have about eight to 10 minutes left and your story is so incredible. I want to know a little bit more about what people are going to get out of your book. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, Man, the questioning, you know, so the, the first thing is I think it's just like on its face, it's a bit of a shocker and it's supposed to be like we really take you behind the walls of one of the worst cults and show you what happens. We go into a basement with a pedophile for 10 hours like we really see the depths of what humans will go to. Um, and then kind of the same, again, in the army side, because these are parallels. And one of the things I think people get out of this, other than, you know, understanding of how these two cultures are similar, is just it's also going to, by definition, ask you to think about your own groups and question your own uh, experiences. So even if you've never been in a group called a cult, you've probably been under some kind of toxic leadership in your life. You've probably seen narcissists. You've probably experienced moments of group dynamics that you either couldn't understand or you knew something was going on um, that was, you know, kind of more sinister than the surface. And I think like when you read through this book, like you, you start to see all of those things in your life. Um, and also, you know, as you said, like you talked about how the things that you happen to you when you're young affect you. And I don't think we talk about that that much right. in journeys of healing. Sometimes we talk about it like, okay, you're all better now. So you're all good now. And I think in this book, what you see is this young woman who thinks at 15, she's getting away from the coercive control, from the bad guys, from all of those things, and then goes out and replicates very, very similar patterns, because that is what I know. And that is, you know, the, the kinds of, of groups and things that I'm drawn to. So a big part um, of it. A big part of it is, is, I mean, there's so much that happens in a cult, but there's so much of it that is just relatable to everybody. And there are certain aspects of our lives that maybe we should all question. 
And I don't need anyone else's opinion or advice. I can look at my life on my own and say, that didn't feel right. That doesn't seem right. And your book is to some degree empowering people to ask the right questions. Yes. And okay. So when I wrote my book, like I thought of my experience as very extreme and other people, when they just hear you grew up in a cult, they think of that as very extreme. But when you read a sentence of me questioning a power structure when I'm seven, you might realize that you've had a similar experience yes. and you don't need someone in your life to call it a cult. This is actually what I, I tell people this all the time. I'm not in the business of diagnosing cults. I made this model and if it quacks like a cult, then you, you can make that decision, right? So like I've had a lot of people my biggest win on this book is so many people reach out to me and tell me that they've given this book to their therapist because it's helping wow. their therapist understand the extent of religious abuse, coercive control, group abuse. These are all things that we're only starting to really talk about and understand in this country. And so being able to see it in story I think can really help you see things in ways that you haven't seen before. Um, and if you're an audio person, I did the audiobook myself and the New York Times said it didn't <laughs> suck. Uh, that's, that's, that's very um, eye-opening for you to say, you know, that you've shared it with therapists because I think about different forms of, of therapy that we do, different treatment methodologies. And a lot of things are very, they're very surface level. You know, and so right off the top, talking about cognitive behavioral therapy and your beliefs or your thoughts and then the actions and behaviors that align with those. But in that conversation, I think it would be difficult to really dive deep enough, far enough into the why of the behavior without some additional framework that your book can provide. It's it's this framework. I mean, even going back to the cost of leaving, the sacred mission, the isolation, those concepts and ideas, whether it's the football team, a cult, a gang, the military, when people act like you, people who have never left the organization are telling you that you are going to ruin your life if you leave the organization. <laughs> And I think it's, it's cults always cults yeah. always tell you that that nobody's gonna love you on the outside, right? And we have this exact same thing when you leave the military. Um, you know, as you were just saying, like I think it's hilarious that they put a colonel in charge of soldiers transitioning out of the military. So like the one person in the room who's never interviewed for a job before is the one signing off on you know soldiers and, and servicemen's packets. And um, you'll love this. I just did a video the other day and I can buy myself flowers video. And I have my, <laughs> my Harvard degree and my book. <laughs> and I was like, but I, I literally had a, a major in the army when I said, I wanna get out. And I said, oh, I'm gonna go to graduate school at the time I was looking at Vanderbilt. And he says, oh, I like how you think you could just waltz into any like big name school you want. And I, I was looking at him going like, first of all, I'm a woman veteran with a 4.0. Like I, and I, and I write well, like I, I do think I have a good shot, but just like why I noticed this, like the military officers, especially will spend so much time trying to make the soldiers afraid of what is out there in the world waiting for them. You're and it's right, exactly. just kind of another, yes. Yeah, so anyways, um, my, my current book, so Uncultured, is a story. And my next project that I'm working on now is the one where I really more like kind of give you these this framework and help you break it down and see it in your life. Um, and that's the one like I'm doing this collaboratively on TikTok, making videos, like talking about it all the time to like get people's better examples and work them in. And every chapter we're starting with a vignette of a group that is not a cult, but you know, like fits these models. Right, um, right. 
but this this book that's out now i mean it is it's a page turner it's a story and i i really do think it will help you open your eyes to any kind of coercive control you might have been under but nobody has called it a cult or nobody called it an abusive relationship or or you know you're still trying to figure out what you went through um like all of those people on the shiny happy people documentaries you know um, yeah. it's wow. it's almost easier when you come from a cult called the children of god and i say that and people go okay i get it right like right. you have a story you've been through some things you've need you need to unpack this but when i read books about some of these other so much more accepted groups to see these documentaries it's you know oh these people have a hundred percent been through the same thing that i went through it's just that we haven't labeled it that yet or our society doesn't think of it that way and so you know just come read the book come join us in the like deconstruction conversation <laughs> and i, I think like you know any of us that spent time in high control or total institutions in our youth so basically before the age of 25 like our development was impacted by that we like it is in our nature to push ourselves down for the good of the group and so there's all these things that if we don't unpack it and if we don't name it we just replicate that over and over again in our lives Definitely. I agree with you because for one, I can relate <laughs> to so many, so many aspects of it. Um, and I put your website there on cultureyourself.com because when you talk about joining you people, I want people to know where to find you. And I want people to understand, everyone watching this should understand that this is not about you labeling people in your life or groups in your life as bad like they're not all bad and you're just you've just been a victim it's really about a deeper dive into what you've experienced and you can have bad experiences with good people because sometimes those good people don't even realize that how they fit into the larger toxic system so it's not about blaming people it's about healing yourself and recognizing the impact on your journey so that you can choose to move forward, you know, as I say, with kindness, optimism, positivity, and empathy. And also, you can unculture yourself so that you can be free. Um, so with that, thank you so much for being here, Daniela. I really appreciate you. I've learned a lot. And I'm going to close with, do you have any last words of advice for anyone who who's really interested in I mean, what you're talking about, I want to learn more. Yeah. Um, you know, first, I just wanted to say about the empathy, right? It's not called empathy when it's for yourself, but sometimes right. when we've been in these total organizations and we've been taught to push ourselves down, we actually don't even know how to have compassion for ourselves. So I talk about it as find empathy for yourself. You know, as you're deconstructing, like, Try to go back sometimes and think of yourself as a character in a story and how like how much compassion or empathy you would have for that person going through that. Um, because I think we can't like get out of our our own way enough for that. Um, and then just to echo what you said, you know, this like I am so not about labeling any group. Honestly, as soon as you call a group a cult, they will start programming members about why they are not a cult. So it's really what why I do what I do is just to help people understand what has gone into programming them in their own lives and just learn how we can operate in groups better. So please come find me on TikTok. I'm always ferociously knitting and talking about group behavior. <laughs> um, and I just like, I really get a lot out of different perspectives all coming into this conversation. So thank, thank you, you so much for having me here. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. Um, I'm definitely going to get a copy of your book. I am definitely just, I'm fascinated. And so much of what you've said, I can easily relate to. And so I just thank you so much for being here. And I'm hoping that we can, 
we can have another discussion about this because I feel like I have a lot left to learn. I would love that. Well, I will get with you offline, but I will get you a signed copy of the book. And then maybe after you've read it, we can have another chat Sounds or, good. you know, anytime that works out. All right. Well, so. thank you very much. And for everyone who is watching, we appreciate you. And until next time, have a great evening. Take care of yourself. Bye.